Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. This week on the show, I'm joined by my friend and the very fine national college football writer from ESPN, Adam Rittenberg. We never had a chance on this show to discuss Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby announcing he would be stepping down this summer. So, we'll talk Bowlesby's legacy and what the Big 12 does next in looking for a new leader. We'll also chat Jeff Brom's contract extension at Purdue and what it says about the Boilermakers and the Big 10 that they were able to lock him up and invest in stability, something that's pretty big in the Big Ten West. And last week, we sort of stumbled upon a good idea for a segment when we discussed what's up with West Virginia with Stephen Godfrey. This week, we'll do a what's up with Cal. Can the Golden Bears ever be what they were in their heyday under Jeff Tedford with Aaron Rodgers and Marshawn Lynch, Deshaun Jackson? The program has been stuck in a rut for a while. There are some short-term issues that have derailed the Bears the last couple of years, but there are also some long-term issues, and Adam and I will discuss whether they can be overcome. And after we're done talking with Adam a little longer than usual, three and out this week have some thoughts on a story i wrote about brian kelly and his move from notre dame to lsu along with a word about the tragic passing of ohio state quarterback former ohio state quarterback Dwayne haskins thanks for listening to the ap top 25 college football podcast you can find us at appodcast.com where you can also find my colleague rob Motti's excellent nfl podcast You can also find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. If you like what you hear, please, please, please take a minute to give us a good review and rating. It helps more college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. If you'd like to email the show, questions and comments can be sent to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. That's aptop25mailbag, the digits 25 at gmail.com. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast, Adam Rittenberg, the great national college football writer for ESPN. Adam, uh, thanks so much for hopping on board. It's been like Uh, You know, I'm going to knock some wood. It hasn't been like the craziest period of this offseason, but there's always news. And last week, the news that that snuck up that I wasn't able to get to because the podcast had already been out was uh, big, big changes in the Big 12 with uh, Bob Bowlesby stepping down. And I guess my first thought is like, God, what's his legacy in the Big 12? You know, he kind of came in right after the first realignment, uh, stabilize, helped stabilize the conference, but then the conference, you know, he left with realignment. So it's been an interesting tenure for Bullsby. It, yeah, it really has. And I don't think the actual news that Bob uh, is moving on is a real surprise, um, you know, given his age and everything they've been through as a conference. Um, I, I think that these commissioner jobs, and I'd be curious, your thoughts are, are no longer these 20, 30 year jobs, you know, I think if a guy, if someone lasts 10 years or 12 years or 15 years, that's a, a pretty good chunk of time, given how challenging these jobs are with the market and the, the landscape changing so much. But so the fact that yeah, I saw Bob at the, uh, at the Chicago, the Midwest regional, he was there for Kansas and Iowa state seemed in great spirits. Um, but yeah, not, not really shocked that he's moving on, but his legacy is interesting. You know, had to deal with, you know, certainly instability on, on you know, several waves of it. Um, I think realignment will always be a, a part of, 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 of looking back at his tenure and how he uh, addressed it or didn't address it. Um, I think he's a guy that will be remembered as uh, you know, one of the more candid voices among commissioners would always kind of tell you what he thought. Uh, there wasn't a lot of filter there, which I know you and I appreciate it, especially towards the end. You know, he made some pretty pointed comments about the lack of playoff expansion at the end of his, uh, now, now we know the end of his tenure. Um, but I, I think, again, the big, you know, being the Big 12 commissioner, really being any commissioner other than the SEC and the Big 10, 
And not to say that those are easy jobs, but I just think those other three power five commissioner jobs are so much harder because of this revenue gap that continues to grow between the SEC, Big Ten and everybody else, especially after the upcoming media rights negotiations with the, with the Big Ten and the SEC's you know, going to be coming after that at some point. So uh, I, I, I think it was, again, tough job. We could certainly um, critique some moves. One that you, you and I could certainly talk about is the decision not to expand a few years ago when they when they did a dive on it and brought in consultants and looked at a lot of the schools that they ended up expanding with in 2021. But I, I think overall, you know, did a did a solid job you know, in a tough job as Big 12 commissioner. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 important to understand what the history of that conference is to understand why the job is difficult, right? There is an institutional collegiality that comes with the Big Ten. Um, now, you did some very good reporting on that a couple of years ago, how that sort of fractured around the pandemic. But nonetheless, the stability of the Big Ten is something that... Um, helps any commissioner, even a commissioner who's had some you know, tough time of it, like Kevin Warren, who's come in. The fact of the matter is the Big Ten is hard to break, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it comes with a lot of uh, added bonuses. And the SEC is a lot like that, a little, doesn't have quite the institutional um, collegiality and um, that the Big Ten has. But again, it's just so powerful right now and has such great tradition that I don't want to say the conference runs itself, but nobody's looking to leave your conference. The Big 12 was literally, you know, a Frankenstein conference, like smashed together the Big 8 and the remnants of the Southwest Conference. And it was never a peaceful place. It was never a stable place. Uh, it, it ate up a couple of commissioners. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think like for anything that you want to make uh, sort of throw stones at, at Bowlesby, well, he should have done this. He should have done that. He was always first and foremost, just managing the internal struggle that it was that conference, Texas, Nebraska, those relationships. And the fact that you had all these other schools who were sort of so reliant on the big powers in that conference simply being, I don't know, allowing them to jump on board. So the dynamics within that conference were always super difficult. And just managing that is, you know, is something that was a, was a struggle, but also something. That, so like, did he do it? Well, I don't know. I, like, I, I don't know. I bet you you could ask, you know, 10 people and get 10 different answers from in that conference. The simple fact that the conference is still alive suggests that he managed it okay. <laughs> Right. No, absolutely. And I think the dynamic, which you laid out really well there in the Big 12 is different from so many other leagues. And, and for me, I saw that in the, the I've only covered one Big 12 media day down at AT&T Stadium. And just to see the throng of media around two schools out of 10 during that event, Texas one day, Oklahoma the other day. It's really pronounced. I mean, you and I have covered all the different media days and you know, certainly, you know, Ohio State gets more attention than Indiana at Big Ten Media Day or USC gets more attention than Washington State at Pac-12 or, you know, Nick Saban gets more attention than whoever the Vanderbilt coach is at SEC. Mm -hmm. But it was so pronounced to me that uh, and, and a lot of it's just that you have so many uh, Dallas media there or media from that state. But those two schools uh, just have so much more interest in them. And they know it. And especially Texas, you know, the, the, the you know, managing Texas, I don't know any commissioner that maybe could have managed Texas well over the last 10 to 15 years. You know, maybe someone could have done marginally better at, at certain points than Bob Bowlesby did. But that's just a very, uh, I, I don't even know if there's a comp, Ralph, as far as how Texas behaves in college athletics, especially relative to you know, a program that hasn't had a ton of national success in football yeah. in Relative the last 15 to years. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, Ohio state can behave a certain way, you know, <laughs> Alabama can behave a certain way, you know, even Clemson and they don't, but they could behave a certain way. You know, Texas behaves in a way that it doesn't really match up with what it's done on the field, but they still have that tremendous brand power. And, and, you know, I think we all know that they were the ones that drove this expansion. I'm uh, sorry, this, this realignment and the ultimate move to the SEC, which, you know, is always going to be part of Bob's legacy, but I just don't know if another commissioner could have stopped that. Do you think someone else 
in that role would have been able to with either an earlier expansion or some other concession that they hadn't already given Texas that they would keep Texas in the Big 12 for the long term? I, I doubt it because I think at a certain point you would have had to give such enormous concessions that you cease being uh, a, a reputable conference. Like, I, I don't know what kind of, I mean, you know, listen, I think you could probably, when things looked very bleak back in the fall, late summer for the big 12, and we were literally wondering, wow, like, will the big 12 fall apart? And is a big, tw- it, it, will the AAC then grab big 12 schools? You know, uh, I mean, that was, I think on the table for at least a, a hot minute there. I think that you could probably have asked some folks in the Big 12, athletic directors and presidents, like, what would you do to keep Texas and Oklahoma? And they might have said anything. Mm-hmm. But but I don't think that's realistic. I do think if you're giving up everything, if you're way in imbal- if you're giving uh, revenue sharing that is way imbalanced. Right. Like at a certain point, like what's the point of having a conference? So. With that said, like, I don't know if there are any concessions that could have done. I don't know if you could have. Well, if we would have added Houston, Texas, uh, excuse me, Houston, Cincinnati and UCF five years ago, maybe. But I don't think that there was. A, but yeah, remember, that wasn't a Bowlesby decision. That was all, all that dog and pony show was driven by David Boren, the then president of Oklahoma, who, again, like, you know, Texas gets a lot of the a lot of the, the arrows. But Oklahoma swings a big stick, too. They, they've swung it more gently. Um, and, but, but back when they didn't expand, that wasn't necessarily a Bowlesby decision. It was a Bowlesby decision to go through the dog and pony show. Cause he thought he was serving his membership, but you know, that it wasn't him standing in the way of that. I think if the, if the conference leaders really thought it was a good idea, they would have. So I don't know. Again, to me, it, it's been dysfunctional from the start. It will probably, maybe in some ways it will be less dysfunctional now. And maybe that's a good way to get into the next question, which is like, where do they go now? This this job might have just gotten easier. I don't know. I don't know if it's gotten better, but it might have gotten easier. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a great way to put it, because I, I mean, when you're saying that, I'm thinking yeah, you, you don't have to deal with Texas. You don't have to deal with this looming. Are they going to stay or go? Same with Oklahoma to a, to a lesser extent. But, you know, I, I think it's all about expectations. If, if those in the Big 12 are realistic about their expectations for revenue and for exposure and for being able to compete nationally in football. I, I think in some ways the job will get easier um, because, you know, and I do think that the, the, the teams that remain in the big 12 want to be in the big 12 for the most part. Now, if, if a big 10 invitation came coming for Kansas or Iowa state, would they take it? Absolutely. But I don't foresee that happening. And so I think I think everyone who's in the league wants to be there and wants to work together to see the league thrive. And I, the crazy thing is during this end part, I mean, Bob Bowlesby announced his retirement the day after the Big 12 won its second consecutive men's basketball national title with two different teams. Mm-hmm. And they just had a really good football season. Uh, if you if you take the playoff out of it, they had two top 10 programs, had a great championship game, you know, one, two New Year's six games. So again, if, if your standard is we got to win the national championship in football, that's going to be hard. If your standard is we got to make the most money, you're not going to make the most money. But you also have schools that have you know great resources. Baylor's one of them. They, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously they love to have more revenue from the league, but they're not struggling to pay Dave Aranda or Scott Drew or build facilities. And so I think it's 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 analyzing the league as a whole and and, and what can the league do to help maybe some of the weaker members financially come up a little bit, because I I think this idea that the big 12 is going to catch the sec or maybe even to lesser extent, the big 10 in terms of uh, 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 revenue and maybe on field performance in the playoff that that may be hard to expect in the future. Yeah. So it's a good thing to point out here because, you know, this is one of the things I always gave Larry Scott from the PAC 12, just a, a little bit of sympathy when he would talk about revenue and, you know, again, Larry did a lot of things that, that didn't make him the best commissioner or certainly to make him a beloved commissioner, but he wasn't necessarily wrong when he would occasionally sort of flip the mirror on the schools and say, listen, the, the conference is not responsible for all your revenue. Like some of this revenue is, is homegrown and the big 12, because it has very passionate fan bases 
and it, maybe, maybe not the largest fan bases, and that's what will always hold it back, right? It doesn't have large markets and large fan bases like SEC, Big Ten, or Texas and Oklahoma. That's why Texas and Oklahoma were so much different from the Big 12 schools. But it does have a lot of passion. You know, I was just in Ames pet this past year for the first time. Like, there are, there are revenue streams available locally to these schools that will help pad. It won't close the gap to the extent, but it will help keep those schools um, relevant and able to do what you just said, to pay their coaches pretty well. Again, it's, you're not going to be able to, to close the gap and really compete with the Big Ten and the Big 12 and the, and the SEC. And trust me, we'll get to that in a little bit when we talk about Jeff Brom. But I think that it positions the Big, Ten, the Big 12 in maybe a better shape than the ACC, which has, a, which has kind of what the Big 12 used to have, which is all these disparate models and different regions and – it's sort of like herding cats in the ACC and what the PAC 12 kind of lacks is just sort of like local passion at some of the schools. Like I think the big 12 separate can separate itself from the ACC and the PAC 12 by what we're talking about, which is sort of like some, some local, very good local support at programs that have relatively small uh, fan bases and markets. No doubt. And again, I, I keep coming back to the performance. Like, you know, you and I look at conferences based on things like revenue and brands and reach, mm-hmm. but does the average college football fan care so much about the revenue gap or do they care about who won the national championship? Yeah. Because I, I really don't see the, I mean, if anything, the big 12 basketball product will just get better and deeper. Yeah. The, the big Kansas, 12 Kansas basketball is going to be really good. And listen, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't do what football does, but it's still something it's important. I mean, if you're going to be throwing eight teams in the tournament every year, that has, you know, that's a, you know, again, it's, it's, it's not football, but it's relevant. Right. So I think, I think again, like, what do you expect if you're the big 12? You, you want to have, obviously, very competitive basketball and, and ideally, you know, regular presence in the Final Four and national champions. And then if we're projecting out to a 12-team playoff, which I, I think both of us think will, will happen in, in 2026, so what's the expectation there? You're certainly going to have one team a year. So if, if you can have, you know, if you can average two teams in the playoff yeah. and then have a really competitive basketball product, and then every once in a while you win a national title in football – I think you could live with that if you're the Big 12. Maybe, maybe you can't. Maybe, maybe that's not good enough. And it'll be, it'll be, you know, that day that Texas wins the national championship as a member of the SEC will be very painful or Oklahoma. I personally don't think that day is coming anytime soon. Uh, but but I, I, I think oh, you just if, if you're practical, and there's a lot of practical people in that part of the country, I think you can see that and be okay with it. Yeah. Maybe, you know, I, I, I think that that's a fine league, especially you know, we're talking about the Pac-12. The Pac-12 isn't competing. You know, they're, 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 they're not competing in revenue, and, and, and George Klyovkov is going to try to close that gap, but they're also not competing on the field and on the court. The right. Big 12 doesn't have that second problem right now. Right. Right. That's a good point. Right. But there, is, there, there is a ceiling. There does seem to be a ceiling at the Big 12 with a lot of those programs. And trust me, I know Baylor fans and TCU fans and Oklahoma State fans don't want to hear that. But I don't know if there I don't know if there are national championship level football that is ceilings at these big 12 schools. But you're right. They should be able to populate the top 25 pretty regularly. With all that said, now you, me and a lot of other people sort of threw out a lot of the same names. Right. When, when Bob stepped down, um, I guess what I would ask you is not necessarily if you have a name, that's fine. But what do you think the model should be for the Big 12 commissioner going forward? Yeah, I, I think it's somebody who can um, capitalize on what we were just talking about. The fact that there should be more collegiality in here. It's a league that, that shouldn't fight each other anymore and should work together. Certainly to less. Stick to, to, yeah, to, yeah, yeah, to stick together and ultimately grow as a whole. And so um, I, I was asking a couple of people, and you probably talked to some of the same folks about, do they hire a George Klyovkov type or do they hire somebody who's more uh, connected to the league, either currently or in, or in the past? 
um, someone in a more traditional role, athletic director. Bob Bowlesby was an athletic director, hadn't been in the Big 12, but had been an AD in the Pac-12. And had Midwest experience, was an Iowa Midwest, guy. Right? right, from Iowa. And, and so, um, yeah, so you hire someone like that or a university president who either you know had been in the Big 12, like you know Washington State's Kirk Schultz, or someone who's already in the Big 12. You know, Linda Livingstone of Baylor has come up a little bit. Um, so I, I, I think it will be a more traditional hire, but I, I think that the qualities, you need to be familiar with the media landscape. Everyone does. You can't be in that job. I mean, Jim Delaney told me this. I think he probably told you the same thing. You know, how often do you think about the media rights deal? Every day. Mm-hmm. You think about every day on the job. And, and media rights deals are different now. You don't do, I mean, you really don't do what the ACC did. Great for my company, bad for the ACC. You don't, you don't do that anymore. So the media rights thing is big. Um, you know, navigating, you know, NIL, possibly pay for play, th- those big things that are coming up I- I- is going to be important. So I, I, I go back and forth, like, because like, I think George Klyovkov is going to be do really well in the Pac-12. Do you hire somebody like that who's a bit of a wild card from the outside um, or do you bring in somebody who's really going to kind of keep the trajectory Bob Bowlesby, um, you know, uh, created there and, and, and try to build that consensus and collegiality because you have that opportunity potentially more than ever now because Texas and OU are going to be leaving. Now, we also don't know when they're going to be leaving. And so this commissioner is going to have to deal with Texas and Oklahoma being in the conference for, I would say, a minimum of two more years and possibly longer. And so that's another quality that, that the Big 12 has to assess. Yeah, it, just to, to, to finish up with, with Bowles, because I think there was, you know, I think it's easy to think, oh, well, he was pushed out or was he pushed out? And I think it's easy, it's, it's easy to become very skeptical anytime you hear, oh, mutual decision, right? I think we all look at that and go, really? I, I mean, I, I think it's fair to frame this as mutual decision. I think that, you know, from what I, from talking to people and what, what I've gathered is I, 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 Bob was not going 70 years old. He wasn't going beyond the, his 2025 contract, right? He wasn't, he wasn't taking another contract extension. And I think the big 12 looked at it and thought we need somebody making these important decisions, the TV contract implementation of new teams, uh, the, the exit of Oklahoma and Texas, who's actually going to be around for to, to feel the impact of those decisions. Like we, we want the next person to be in place and be making those decisions. So it made perfect sense for everybody involved for it to go the way it went right now. And as you know, and as you mentioned with the playoff and, and again, sort of being sniped and feeling like he was being sniped by Oklahoma and Texas. I, I think Bob Bowlesby just sort of had enough of the bullshit quite frankly, like I think he had reached the point where like, I think he had had enough. I think the big 12 had sort of had enough and realized it was, it was time to move on to someone to make some of these other big decisions. So I think that's why it landed where it landed. And again, it'll be interesting to see. I think the idea of a university president is an interesting idea. Um, Maybe that's a different kind of slightly different spin on the traditional model uh, and maybe that could be the case. So one thing I'll, I'll end on with that is, you know, you talk about the TV and, and bring in somebody like Klyovkov, who's got media, uh, extensive media background. What I keep hearing from people is there are lots of people to hire to handle those things. Like you don't necessarily have to be a TV guy. You can simply hire. You, you have to be smart enough to hire the right advisors and the right consultants. So I, I guess we'll see where that goes from there. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting time and we'll definitely, I, I, again, you're right. We will definitely miss Bob Bowles because very few people in this business pick up the phone and return the phone call as, as often and as quickly as Bob Bowlesby did. It was, he did, and it, it was great. And, and again, that's all that we can ask for. And he really reached the, you know, not, not giving a crap uh, stage <laughs> of his career at the end, right. which was, which is great, which is usually the final step before you, you move on. Let me just ask you this. How important do you think are you know, some Big 12 ties? Because, you know, a guy like Oliver Luck's name has come up, who has had a very interesting career, your former AD in the Big 12, West Virginia, at the NCAA, you know, obviously with the, with the XFL. Is, is that an interesting name? Are there other athletic directors who maybe have, bit, who have some, you know, even some very loose ties to the Big 12? You know, uh, Rob Mullins from Oregon has come up from West Virginia, even though West Virginia wasn't a big 12 school back then. Does that matter in this case or because the big 12 is going to look so different 
even in a few years, it's not as relevant. I don't think it would hurt to know the lay of the land and the nature and culture of your schools. Because West Virginia has been a little bit of an odd fit for the Big 12. But I will say this, like the reason why I thought West Virginia was a, a decent fit, like geographically, it's been a problem. But the reason why I thought that I remember I actually it was Oliver Luck who, who told me this when he was AD is like, you know, we're, we, we are we are a big 12 town. In other words, it's that town where you can't really fly to it, you know, um, but it's a good college town. It's more than it's not some little it's not it's not an outpost, so to speak, um, but it's got sort of the guts of a of a, of a good very supportive, again, maybe not the biggest fan base, but very supportive fan base. And I think having someone who may have some ties to the conference, who understands that that's sort of the ethos of the conference might help. Um, again, is it like we absolutely have to have that? No, I don't think so. But I do think that that would help because, again, I think understanding the models that the, the models of your schools of the bulk of your schools is probably helpful in understanding how to maximize the revenues and the potential of those schools. So an Oliver Luck, listen, I don't know if all does Oliver want the job, right? Um, I mean, he's, he's had a pretty nice life. I, mm-hmm. I just don't know if like, I, I think he likes, you know, I'll, I'll say this. I think he, I think he likes coming up. I think he likes his name kind of coming up here. And I think he likes being involved in college athletics, but I don't know. Does he actually want to do this job? Cause these jobs, as you know, they, they do get hard. That's interesting. I don't know. I think, I think you talk about West Virginia for Rob Mullins, Shane Lyons, the West Virginia AD, frankly, he has announced his intentions by his resume. He is in, he is the, head of the division one council, the chairman of the division NCAA division one council. He has been on the constitution committee. I think he's working on the transformation committee. He has been the head of football oversight. When you are that active on that many national issues and on the NCAA level, I, I think you've clearly stated that your aspirations are beyond just being an AD, not that it's not great to be the AD of West Virginia. So I could see a, a person like that being considered. I know Mac Rhodes, who's a really well-respected AD. His name has sort of come up, but he also just signed a 10-year contract at Baylor. Uh, you know, Kirby Hocutt is an interesting pl- person who has played in the Big 12, the Texas uh, Tech AD. So like, is that is that a necessity to get somebody within the Big 12? No. But I think if you're looking for that, those are the names that are going to sort of pop up. Yeah, no, I, I and it, again, when I talked to some uh, somebody somewhat close to the league, they didn't feel like there were that many strong internal candidates. But I think Lions, the more that I look at him, you know, I, he reminds me a little bit of what you, you know, just in, as you went through his resume of, of Jim Phillips. You know, Jim, Jim had a very similar resume at Northwestern. As an athletic director, he'd been chair of the Division One Council. He'd been involved in all these committees, and you know his his. He, we always talked then that if you were to leave, it was only going to be for a commissioner job. And mm-hmm. so I think that's maybe similar with a guy like like Shane Lyons, um, and certainly you know, Kirby Hocutt. We all remember him as the the uh, the chair mm-hmm. of the the College Football Playoff Selection Committee. But um, yeah, I, I I think it will be interesting. I, I, I my, my sense is. is They'll, they'll, it'll be somewhat of a conservative hire, at least uh, relative to George Klyovkov, Kevin Warren. I don't yeah. think it's going to be someone like that. I think it's going to be somebody like we're not going to be Googling this person when they when they announce it or when it leaks out. Like Klyovkov. All quite literally. <laughs> Warren, I mean, we all thought it was going to be Jim Phillips in the Big Ten. I mean, yeah. including Warren was Big similar too, right? He, oh, he yeah. was a little more known in sports circles. Like, I think, I think if you had been in the Midwest and had some, you know, some ties, you, like you sort of knew his name a mm-hmm. little bit. Klyovkov is, came completely from out of nowhere as far as, you know, again, like the knowledge base that people like you and I have, right? Like he was, fa- he was far afield as far as that's concerned. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it'll be a relatively conservative hire. So I want to take a quick break here. I want to t- turn back. We'll, we'll hit a couple of different topics when I come back with Adam Rittenberg from ESPN on the AP Top 25 college football podcast you're listening to the ap top 25 college football podcast with your host ralph russo the associated press college football writer 
you have any questions for our host or any of our guests, email the show at aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And to get the rest of your football fix, also take a listen to the AP Pro Football Podcast with host Rob Motti, writer and sports radio personality as he tackles all the important news on and off the field of the National Football League and provide you with insider exclusives and in-depth analysis along with insightful interviews with Hall of Famers, current players, coaches, and executives. Rob will take you around the league, break down the biggest games, and keep you in the know only the way AP can. Like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. And we're back with Adam Rittenberg, the great Adam Rittenberg, college football writer, uh, national college football writer for ESPN, ESPN.com. You can find all his great stuff. Um, so, Adam, you know, it, it wasn't like huge news that uh, Jeff Brom was um, extended at Purdue 2027. So that's another long extension, not quite 10 years like is the is vogue these days but we do see a lot of these schools like being very aggressive with their extensions and he just had a nine a nine win season so it makes it makes some sense i guess to extend him but i i guess what 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 struck me is is it going back to our conversation about like where the big 10 stands and where the sec stands relative to the other other conferences it just seems like if you're purdue the fact that you can sort of afford and be positioned to have this pretty well-respected coach and lock him up for a long time, I think is indicative of like the gap that exists here between these conferences. I mean, this is Purdue. Purdue has never won the big 10 West. I I don't know. You know, it's sort of this middling big 10 program, but, or, or am I overrating Brom? That's the other thing, too. Like, are we overrating how good a coach Jeff Brom is? Because I think Jeff Brom is a, a pretty darn good coach who might be sought after by other schools. But, man, like a, a, a Purdue can lock him up. Man, it, it just sort of shows the strength of the Big Ten. Right. And I, yeah, I think there's a couple of things going on here. You know, is Jeff a good coach? I think he is. I, I would not say he's had a great tenure at Purdue. He's still under 500. But he's unquestionably coming off of his best season. And as you know, coaches – that have some juice on offense that ha- that project as being exciting offensive guys and quarterback guys are always going to be sought after and also positioned to get deals like this, maybe even when they don't deserve it. I'm not saying he doesn't deserve it, but I, I think that uh, if you're Purdue, you're coming off of a nine win year. That's their most wins, Ralph, since 20, 2003. Um, so that was sort of the end of Holy Joe cow. Killer's. Really I, mean, I didn't even realize that. Yeah. Yeah. They hadn't got to nine. Long. Yeah. Cause they beat Tennessee in the, uh, in the Music City Bowl, that was one of the more uh, mm-hmm. uh, exciting not non uh, New Year's Six Bowls last year, and they, and they have a team coming back with Aiden O'Connell, uh, and uh, I know they lose um, some 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 really good players on both sides with um, you know uh, George Karloftis and uh, and David no. Bell moving on, but but they 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 should be a factor in the Big Ten West this year, which once again and almost always is is wide open, um, and, and again I think there's a desire at a school like Purdue to be stable because they had that stability for such a long time with Joe Tiller, and then they weren't able to continue it, you know, with Danny Hope and then and then Daryl Hazel. Uh, and, and now they feel like, you know, Brahms 50 years old. Uh, I think he really likes living in West Lafayette. He's still close enough to his native Louisville where his, where his, uh, his folks live. He's got all his brothers on staff. Like it's a really you know, kind of nice setup there, but because of the, background on offense and the quarterback play and receivers like he will be coveted if you don't lock him down um and so i think if you're if you're purdue and you have those resources which every big 10 school has um you know it it does make sense now if he puts up a couple of six win seasons the next two years we may be questioning this but i understand it right now um to 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 do this and to try to you know, put him in a position where maybe he just finishes his career as Purdue's coach and never goes to the SEC or never goes to Louisville or never goes to the NFL. Because I think those are all possibilities for a guy 
who played quarterback at a high level and has shown that uh, he can produce high level offenses and fun offenses. Yeah. It's so interesting. You know, a couple of years back when they, when they gave him that massive contract, well, he went over 5 million, right. When, when Louisville made the run after him and again, he's a Louisville guy. So there was that, that tug of home, but it was also relatively early in his tenure. And I think there was still a lot of like very high hopes for what that could be. I kind of made the argument like, does Purdue need a coach this good? And I know that sounds like a real slight to Purdue, and frankly it is. But what I, my, my point was like, like, like how, like, can Purdue justify spending this much for a coach at a program that no matter how good the coach is, the ceiling is probably like, hey, maybe we strike, we hit lightning in a bottle and we can have a Northwestern type um, uh, Big Ten West championship where everything just sort of breaks right and we slip in there and grab a Big Ten West championship, like, is it worth it for Purdue to make that type of investment or, or should they have left Brom go? And really, in retrospect, like, again, it sort of speaks to, like, the amount of money flowing into these Big Ten schools. The answer is yes. If you're big, yes, because you have all this money. So, of course, you should. If you can get someone who just makes your program stable and sort of keeps it out of the gutter, Um and you're right, his record isn't great, but they haven't been terrible. Like you can make an argument, hey, if I'm going to pay you this much and give you this big a contract, you need better results than this. But you, it is Purdue. And, you know, like I think just to be stable and not be terrible is worth paying for because you got the money. Like it, it, that sounds a little crazy, but I think it is right. Yeah, it is. And, and they've invested in other areas of their program. If you've been to, to West Lafayette, uh, like I have um, a few times. They yeah, have I'm sort of crapping all over Purdue no, here. No, I don't no, really they, mean to, but like, you know, but again, it, it speaks to just like the, what you can do by simply being a Big Ten school. Totally. And, and again, and what your what your expectations should be. And I just look back at the Joe Tiller era because, you know, I went to school in the Big Ten and you know, I, like that's what that's what I remember. Like when I when I started school, you know, Purdue was on a program on the rise. They won the Big Ten my sophomore year of college. They made a bowl game every year but one between 1997 and and, and 2007. So this was a, a solid Big Ten program, and I think that's you know you know again it, it, the Big Ten could scrap division soon, and then we could certainly talk about that a little bit because I think that's where we might be heading in college football. But if they do, there won't be a West to win. But if you can be a program that you know, consistently makes a bowl game seven, eight, nine, maybe have that special year, exciting quarterbacks, exciting receivers. You know, they have that tradition of defensive ends. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually writing about uh, George Karloftis later this week. And you know, he's the latest one who you know, he, he just have a, an amazing run of, of high level guys at, at, at the pass rusher spot. That's, that's not a bad existence to have because, you know, you know, it could be worse. You know, you could be where Illinois has been. You know, you could be where your rival Indiana has been at times or where other Big Ten programs have been, including Purdue. I mean, they, they've been down. Um, and so if you have that ability to be stable and also hit on some of your traditional core elements, which at Purdue is quarterback play and, and, and receivers and defensive ends. And Jeff Brom has delivered on, on some of those. Now, I think he's made some better hires on the defensive side in recent years. Um, I still want to see them run the ball a little bit better because that was uh, something they, they were still able to do well um, on, under Joe Tiller. Uh, so so there, there's some room to grow there. But I, I think in, in the Big Ten, and you've seen it, there is a greater desire for stability than maybe anywhere else in the country. Like we would rather be stable and solid than roll the dice. You know, like if you're, you know, that's what Iowa has done for years with Kirk Ferentz. It's what Wisconsin is doing right now with Paul Chris, Northwestern with, uh, with Pat Fitzgerald, um, you know, Mark D'Antonio bought stability to Michigan state and he obviously elevated that program. But I, I think there's less of a, yeah, you know, we're cool with the coach leaving. We, you know, we'll, we'll roll the dice and we'll be fine. I don't think there's that much of the mentality in the big 10. Uh, so when you can lock up a guy like Jeff Brom and have a pretty good idea of what you're going to get, you're going to do it. And to your point, you certainly have the resources to do it. Yeah, it, it's the Iowa model in, in, to a certain degree. I think Iowa in many ways set the blueprint on this Where with some of these Big Ten schools where, okay, let's be very realistic about our expectations here. We're probably not going to win national championships, but as long as we can continue to be pretty good, uh, again, avoid bottoming out, 
our stability can play into our favor because it will lead to those breakout years, right? By simply being stable, having an identity, we can churn out pretty good years, but it also positions up to it to occasionally break out and be much better than that. And you're right, the programs in the Big Ten that haven't been positioned that way, most notably is Illinois. Illinois has been the one that's had such a hard time finding stability and, and just not finding an identity and finding, a st- finding some stability. So, yeah, Purdue, you got your man. And, um, again, it's, just, it's great to cash them Big Ten checks. It's just really it – just, it just speaks to the, the, the money that's flowing into that conference. Now, the last thing I wanted to hit on you with, Adam, last week – so I sort of stumbled upon what I think might be a recurring segment in this show, and that is last week uh, I had Stephen Godfrey on and we talked about like, what's up with West Virginia? Like, like what's going on there and why can't this program, why has this program sort of failed to launch under Neil Brown? And I thought to myself, like, I could probably do this for a lot of different teams for a lot of different schools, not necessarily like just pick up, like we all know Kansas is terrible. We all know that like they're dysfunctional. But these schools that are, are sort of in where West Virginia is and the school I'm going to throw at you, because I know it's a school that is sort of near and dear to your heart because you have ties there, both family and uh, uh, throughout your history. And that is so I'll, I'll just let, let it out to you this way. What's up with Cal? Like what? You know, there was a point when they were USC's rival, like main competitor at, at the heyday of Pete Carroll's USC dynasty. Cal and Tedford under Jeff Tedford were the team that gave USC the, the biggest challenges. Now I'm not saying we're going to go back to that, but Cal sort of just been spinning its wheels for a while. It just managed to keep Justin Wilcox away from Oregon, depending on how you want to you know split the semantics of that story. So like, you know, again, like I, I throw it out there very broadly, what's up with Cal and can we expect Cal to ever be more than this? Is it just, why is it so stuck in a rut and can it, can it remove itself? So there's a kind of like a long-term answer and a short-term answer. I'll start with the short-term answer. I, I think Cal was on the cusp of, you know, taking that next step and, and creating the type of stability that they hadn't enjoyed since the, the heyday of the Tedford era. I mean, between 2003 and 2011, Cal made a bowl all but one year. They had three top 25 finishes. They won, let's see, five bowls in that span and, and, and you know, could have made the Rose Bowl that one year. And, you right. know, and, Probably got screwed out of the Rose Bowl. Won't get into that. That's too painful <laughs> yeah. for me. But, um, you, know, at, you know, after the 2019 season, they were coming off of two bowl appearances, two winning records under a, a promising coach uh, who had restored, you know, a defensive identity, was recruiting well uh, in Justin Wilcox. I don't believe there's been any team in college football that was more negatively affected by COVID, at least at the power five level than the Cal golden bears. Uh, This is a team that played four games in 2020 um, uh, went one and three, uh, you know, and then last year they were really the only team during the regular season that, you know, had a game so impacted by COVID and, and, and the restrictions in Berkeley, which obviously I know growing up there, I know how people are, um, that they were put in such a, a, a disadvantage, disadvantageous position that they couldn't really compete with an Arizona team that didn't win another game. Mm-hmm. So they finished five and seven. If that's a win, it's six and six. At least you're going to a bowl game. Uh, at least there's a little bit of, of, of juice there. So, uh, I, you know, it's been incredibly frustrating because they've had to deal with, I think, more um, uh, aggressive or restrictive local ordin- ordinances around COVID than any any power five team in the country doesn't so that's, excuse so that's other the things. short term right that's, that's the, the short term and, and, and honestly you could go back even last year ralph you know they they blew a big lead against tcu game they should have won mm-hmm. there were a couple other games early last year that they were in position to win and so it's it's not you can't just blame the city of berkeley and the right. COVID ordinances but you know long term you know cal has not been a, a you know cal's one of the top um, uh, you know, public institutions in the world, uh, certainly in America, they are not a, a, a school that, you know, feels that they have to go all in on athletics um, to, to justify their existence as a, a university. And so there's always been financial struggles there. Um, you know, getting the stadium, uh, you know, which literally a fault line runs through the Hayward fault runs through Memorial Stadium. Um, so they had to get that done. And, you know, it took a long time and a lot of money to get that done. 
And, you know, uh, to get, getting the commitment from the administration to fund, uh, you know, the staff salaries and facilities and now NIL and, and these other areas that you need to compete in, it, it's been hard to come by uh, over the years. You know, I, Cal is the reason I'm a, a college football writer. I'll be real clear. I mean, I, I moved to the Bay Area in 19. 19- uh, 90 and I from the Northeast, you know, you're, you're one of the only Northeast guys that I know that actually was always a college football guy. But like I, I was a baseball fan. And because I lived in the city of Berkeley and, and, and became a Cal season ticket holder, like that got me into college football. Um, and there were some decent teams in the early 90s and mid 90s. And then it went it went way downhill. And then Tedford brought it up and then it went downhill again. And now Wilcox brought it up and then it went downhill. So like this is sort of the nature of a program that, you know, hasn't been to the Rose Bowl, I, I think, since uh, since the the the, uh, the, the, the 50s, early 50s. Right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, Pappy Waldorf um, who has a statue <laughs> on campus. It was the last Cal coach to really have that high level national success. Yeah, they had three top five finishes in a row in 48, 49 and 50. So, th- you know, th- this this pattern is not unusual for a place that just hasn't invested uh, maybe the way it needed to um to to get to, to to the next level even though they are in a, a great state for talent it's a great school but you know you're competing with usc you're competing with stanford which has put the money in to be an elite athletic program and so i think until that happens it's always going to be a challenge but i will say the fact that they were able to keep justin wilcox who i think can have some stability and success at cal is a good thing we'll just see if he can actually deliver that beginning this fall yeah, I just I, I think what one of the things my my general theme on the podcast this year has been getting away from a coach as savior. Um, and, and listen, I think Justin Wilcox, right? Like he's done a nice job, but I also I guess it's my I feel like it's 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 a uh, it's my duty in some ways to try to get 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 across to people because we we concentrate so much on coaches and we talk so much about can this coach turn it around? Can that coach turn it around? That. There's there's a lot more that goes into these programs that probably will determine whether they are successful or not than the coach. Like I I don't know if any coach is really positioned to have great success at Cal right now because of what you talked about as far as investments and priority and um, uh, d- you know resources that go into the program. I, I also think there's an interesting dynamic with Cal and you talked about it's a great state for talent. It's not as great a state as it used to be, right? I mean, without question, California is still a place where you can get amazing football players, but not quite as many as and many of them as it used to be, and not quite as many of them want to stay in the Pac-12 as it used to. And I think that dynamic has also been really played against Cal and maybe Stanford to a certain degree in that, like, in the past, there were so many good players in the state that even a lack of investment could sort of be and prioritizing of, of the sport could be, could be uh, papered over by simply saying like, we got great players here and they want to play. Like we're just going to get the great players to stay here and we get enough of them. And that creates great teams. If you get, you know, Marshawn Lynch and Deshaun Jackson and, and Aaron Rodgers, like those are all guys who are playing in your state. So I think as it becomes less desirable for great California players, state of California players to stay in California. And then the number of great players decreases, even if it's relatively marginal. I think the schools like Cal, that's the, that's my big problem with the long term for Cal. Like, does it have enough just access to talent to paper over the fact that we're not going to be as invested as everybody else? It's a great point, And it's hard to, you know, completely project how it will affect Cal long-term. But I do think it brings up an interesting discussion that we can have and certainly bring Stanford into this. Like, does the academic piece matter like it used to? Because, it, it, you know, you and I are parents. Your daughter's obviously a lot closer to getting to college than, than my sons and my daughter are. But, like, if I'm sitting there and I have the chance to send my kid to a school like Cal on a full ride, what that could do for their life is, I mean, it would just be amazing. Whether I live in California or I live mm-hmm. in Alaska or I live in Maine or I live in Florida, like like that's a great opportunity. So is that enough of a selling point? Is there anything else Justin uh, Wilcox and his staff can do? One thing I, I think they can 
is, 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 is show that, Hey, this is a place that we can develop you into an NFL player because you know, he's done that quite a lot in his career. Jeff Ted, that Jeff Tedford did that at a very high level during his Cal tenure with guys like, like that you mentioned, just Deshaun uh, uh, Jackson and others. Um, and, you know, and, and Justin Wilcox, I, I remember talking to him when he was at Wisconsin, he loved their model because they were a program that, that didn't always get the greatest recruiting classes, but they would turn those guys into NFL players. And so I, maybe that's the approach they have to take. Um, I, I don't know if selling the academics and you know, being in, in Berkeley and being in the Bay Area is, is enough, uh, but, but they're obviously going to have to broaden beyond the state or even the West Coast in some cases to fill out rosters. Do you make yourself an appealing transfer destination? Uh, because everybody has to do that to a degree. I mean, that's one thing that Stanford has really struggled with is, you know, can they take transfers? Northwestern, can they take transfers at the same rate uh, as they're losing transfers? Cal might not have as many hurdles with the transfer piece as a school like Stanford. Well, you'd think that some of these California schools would be able to do the, the bounce back model that other schools in places like Texas and Florida. Now, again, you don't want to necessarily like model yourself after a G5 program, no offense to them, but like SMU's done really great at like, hey, you were from Texas, you went away, come back home, come play, come play in Dallas again, because all these players are in Dallas or you know, leave and then decide like, hey, like maybe let me live to try to be back home. And TCU does that. And some other power five programs are able to do that. You know, I don't know, like just as you said, like the academic piece, how much does that limit you on being a bounce back program on, on telling all those Northern California kids, hey, I know you left, but we're here for you if you want to come back. Maybe there's that. Uh, we're also it also butts into the just this overall narrative, right, of like, is the Pac-12 producing? Is the Pac-12 playing a high enough level of football quality of football that it makes it desirable for kids to go to the NFL from the Pac-12? And that's not necessarily just a Cal problem; that's a Pac-12 problem. But I feel like Cal, again, if you're not going to invest, and then you have those other issues too with the narrative around your conference and maybe a few less players coming out of your your footprint like then it really piles up. Like Oregon is trying to be more national and fighting back against like it's other, the other things that hold back Oregon that or that potentially could hold back Oregon. They are pushing back against that by being the school that invests, invests over the top. Right. And, and, and then that's, that, that's, that's their advantage. And so they're going to play right into it. And I, I think, I don't know if you saw the comments from, new offensive coordinator, Kenny Dillingham about how Oregon is the only place that reminds him of the sec right, right. On, on the West coast. I don't think anyone would say that about uh, 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 Berkeley, but I, I think the bounce back thing is interesting because there, you know, there will always be people in the Bay area. Like, you know, drive, I'm out here right now. I'm actually hopefully going to go over to Cal practice uh, later this week. There, there's a lot of traffic. There are a lot of people. And some of those people will be playing football. I mean, you even think of a guy like, like, wasn't Najee Harris uh, just yeah, from North? Najee was uh, in Northern so, California. So, so if, if Najee Harris goes to Alabama in an alternate universe and never becomes Najee Harris and he wants to transfer, Cal should be a place that says, hey, look at our history of, of Marshawn Lynch and, and other running backs. We will take you. You'll be our guy. And then we'll get you to the NFL that way. So that, that, that could be a strategy. Um, that I, I would imagine, you know, Cal is looking at because, you know, the one thing that, that, you know, no college can move its campus. And I think right. Cal, even though it has some disadvantages, that, that could be a potential advantage for them going forward. But again, it's all relative. Is Cal ever going to be a national powerhouse? The history says no. Could they be, a, could they be what, what hopefully Purdue is turning into? Or yeah. Could they be a consistent eight, nine win team like the team they were under Jeff Tedford? I think they could. I think that, that's a realistic model if you're Justin Wilcox and Jim Knowlton and the Cal administration. You know, you, you mentioned the, the academic piece, and I'll get, get some last thoughts on this, is the idea that I, there's only so many schools that can do that. And, and what I mean by that is like, so Stanford had a good role of like, and Notre Dame tries to do this as well. Notre Dame, to a certain degree, took it from Stanford because Notre Dame, because Stanford got it right before Notre Dame got it right, which is appeal to the player as you listen. I know you're got a chance to play in the NFL. We're going to get you to the NFL, but you could be so much more. But you're not just an NFL player. You're not just a football player. And look at all the things that you can do here on top of just being, and that was sort of always Stanford's sell. Like you're different. You should be here. 
you know, this is the place that will that will develop all. Now, I know all the schools will say that they all say we develop the person, we develop profession and they all do a good job of that. And that sort of speaks back to what you're saying about does the does the academic piece sell as much as it used to? I would argue that a lot of the schools are doing a better job, like a lot of SEC schools and AC schools, every school is doing a better job of sort of selling like, listen, we're going to develop all of you. We're going to do professional development here. Come here and we'll set up all these resources and conduits for you to become a professional in other ways. Mm -hmm. We will give you, we will open doors to those things too. You don't necessarily have to go to Cal or Stanford to find those things. So I think it becomes harder for a school like Cal to use that as a as a, as a, as a recruiting hook, because a, the guys you're, you, that means you're going to be butting heads with Notre Dame, Stanford, Northwestern. In other words, there are already schools that are doing that, that, that sort of present the same model. And frankly, all the schools are doing a better job of presenting themselves to those type of kids as a place where you can come here, be an NFL player, but also be more than that. You're right. And, and it's been, I mean, Ohio state has a great program, um, the kind of off field development program. I, I just, and maybe this is sort of the snob in me, like, like if you're a parent and your, your, your player, your kid player is saying, I want to transfer out of Stanford before I get my degree. No, it's how, not happening. How are parents yeah. green lighting that? Like, like how, like, I, I, I just I, like, no, you have to get your degree because yeah. like the odds are you're going to need that degree. Right. Not to say those other degrees aren't great. But what that degree can do, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a collection of schools that we're talking about that, that also play football at a high level. Man, how, how like, I, 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 this is another podcast, but I, I would love to know the thought process of all the parents that are saying to, you know, little Ralph and little Adam, oh, yeah, yeah, you're cool. You go in the portal. You'll be fine. I, I, like, I, I won't do that. Or I, I will be a lot. That'll be a lot harder decision for me to make as a parent to say yeah. that's okay. You can leave this great school without your degree. And again, and this is again, and this is not to knock, you know, I'm not, this is not playing the dumb jock card here. Cause I don't believe that we've all been around enough football players to know that like these kids are really impressive. The fact that they're yeah. able to do all, all that they do, but Cal I'll take, you know, Stanford is a, is a whole nother level, but a place like Cal, it's not only that, you know, you do have to make some grades there, right? And there's not that big a pool of kids, even as, even though they're not dumb jocks, there's only so many that can make the cut of Cal. Sure. So, so it just, again, it narrows your pool of who you can recruit. And if that pool gets narrow for all these other reasons, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough needle to thread. And I just wonder if, you know, again, like, I don't think Cal is at, at in danger of just sort of like, you know, spinning off and becoming Kansas, but it does make, but they are one of these programs where I find myself going, what's up with them. Can they ever get it back to where they were? And again, I know it's a program that's near and dear to your heart. So I figured if I was going to, if I was going to ask about Cal football, you're the perfect guy to do it, Adam. Well, I appreciate it again, whenever I go and hopefully I get a chance to go back. Uh, whenever I go in that stadium, I remember being a, a 12 year old kid and, and, and watching Cal blow a lead to Washington in 1993 <laughs> or the 1991 team, which was a great team. So yeah, it's really the place I fell in love with college football because I didn't know much about the sport until I got out there and learning about Cal Stanford. So yeah, I could, I could talk Cal football with you. And, all day. You, know, like, you know, so we were out there last year uh, in that Northern California area. Like it's obviously it's not like, it's not a traditional, like unbelievable big stadium. Like you might think, again, you see some of the SEC and Big Ten stadiums. But we drove around the stadium and got out and sort of walked around a little bit. And like, it's a neat, it, it looks like a really neat place to watch a game. It looks like it would be a really great, like, you know, certain places are going to have beautiful views. So, you know, again, like, I, I guess it depends on what your atmosphere is. But it certainly seems like it, it could be a great place to watch games and a great venue to draw people and draw recruits to if you have energy in the building and people are excited about the team. Like it, it looks like it has a lot of character and is a beautiful setting. It really is. Yeah, no, I mean, it's right in Strawberry Canyon there. You can, you know, on clear days, you can see all of San Francisco and the Golden Gate Bridge from the from the press box. There's there's a hill that called Tightwad Hill that, that some people will just sit up there and watch the game. They'll fire the game. I mean, there's, there's all the stuff that I grew up with that's still there, but it, you're right. It's, it's, it's drumming up the support and enthusiasm 
to then get somebody on campus to be like, wow, this would be a really uh, great place to, to play football. And um, I think it can still be that, you know, relative, um, but uh, especially in a wide open Pac-12, but I, I still think there, there needs to be continued commitment from the administration because, um, you know, there's just so many factors now with NIL and other areas that if you don't keep up, you're going to fall behind. Adam Rittenberg from ESPN uh, does a great job. You can find his stuff on ESPN.com and all other places. Uh, hey, man, I really appreciate you taking a little time out of what is was a, a little break from work to join me today. Covered a lot of ground, provided a lot of great insight. Always appreciate it, Adam. Thanks, Ralph. Appreciate you. Always love coming on the pod. And now three and out. First down. Last week, I posted a story from my trip to Baton Rouge to sit down with new LSU coach Brian Kelly. The former Notre Dame coach opened up to me and a couple of other reporters, to be fair, who, who made similar trips about why he decided to leave Notre Dame after 12 seasons. If you haven't had a chance to read it, a link will be posted in the show notes. Here's my take on Kelly's comments, which did not go over well with Notre Dame fans. Kelly has never been the most sympathetic figure and, frankly, I think to outsiders, the most likable guy. That doesn't mean he's a bad guy, but his public persona, his delivery, and his confidence bordering on cockiness combined with being the coach at a school so many fans love to hate has made him a bit of a villain in college football. While Notre Dame fans, I think, mostly grew to appreciate Kelly for getting the program back among the best in college football, it is also safe to say he was never really beloved by fighting Irish fans. It got left out of the story, but I asked Kelly about that too. Did he feel underappreciated at Notre Dame? Maybe unappreciated? Did it bother him that he wasn't beloved at Notre Dame? That he might never be, even if he did deliver a national championship? He just was never an endearing figure. Kelly poo-pooed that idea. He understood that it's hard to be embraced at a place where you're walking in the footsteps of legends like Newt Rockne and Araparsegan, Leahy, and even Holtz. He insisted that didn't play a role in his departure, and his actions do suggest that he was ready to play out his career in South Bend. He and his wife had just built a house a few blocks away from campus, and I had numerous people close to Kelly tell me that he seemed at peace with his place in Notre Dame history. That was right up until he left. I know Notre Dame fans read those Kelly quotes in my story and think he's blaming everyone but himself for not getting the Irish over the hump and winning a national title, hell, or even just being more competitive with the elite programs in college football. I get it. Kelly's not going to get the benefit of the doubt from most college football fans, but the facts are the facts, and conditions in college football now are such that I'm not sure Notre Dame can be much better than it is or than it was under Kelly for the last five years. Kelly talked a lot about facilities and resources, and those, without a doubt, matter in college football. But as I wrote in the story, what LSU has that no amount of money can replicate for Notre Dame is a mountain of talented players in its backyard and an SEC logo on the uniforms. Location is everything in recruiting, and recruiting is life in college football. And this is undeniably true. It is easier to win a national championship at LSU right now than Notre Dame. And just because you don't like Brian Kelly doesn't mean that isn't true. Second down, Alabama made what looks like a promising portal pickup when it landed a commitment from Vanderbilt offensive tackle Tyler Steen. Steen was a three-year starter for the Commodores and provides some experience to a Crimson Tide line that was light in that area, especially at tackle. The hope is he slides right into the left tackle spot and starts. Now, of course, at Alabama, nobody is assured of a starting spot, but the Crimson Tide doesn't do much portal shopping. If Nick Saban came out of spring practice thinking his team needed a boost along the line of scrimmage, then Steen will be given every opportunity to plug that hole. He could join 
former Georgia Tech running back Jameer Gibbs and former Georgia wide receiver Jermaine Burton as transfers to start for the Tide in 2022. Third down. I want to take a moment to discuss the tragic death of Dwayne Haskins, a Heisman Trophy finalist and the quarterback that helped usher in a new era of Ohio State football. Haskins showed that under Ryan Day, Ohio State was a place that elite quarterbacks should want to play. I understand the pro career never really launched, but at 24, there was still a lot of potential for a long and successful stint in the NFL for Haskins. But honestly, who cares about that right now? One of the misguided things we do as sports fans is make a connection between character and performance. If you play well, you must be of high character, play poorly, and it's a character flaw in some way. It doesn't really work that way, though. Now there is plenty of evidence that shows character does equate to success in athletics, as it does in every walk of life. But here's where those two things diverge. To be a great competitor takes certain characteristics that don't necessarily ensure you being a good person. And there are plenty of examples of great athletes who had enormous character flaws. And more importantly, you can be a good person, compassionate, thoughtful, generous, decent, while also lacking some of the characteristics that make a person a great competitor. I bring this up because a few folks stepped in it after the awful news about Haskins broke. Too quick to talk about Haskins, the player, and conflate that with Haskins, the person. I didn't know Dwayne Haskins personally. Rhiannon Walker, a former beat writer for the Washington football team, did, or at least a lot more so than a lot of folks who covered him the way I did. She talked about him on the Athletic Football Show podcast this week. I'll post a link to that show through a tweet that she gave which also gave a little insight to Haskins, on the show notes. Dwayne Haskins seemed like someone worth getting to know. That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. Please follow so you do not miss an episode. If you have any questions you'd like me or my guests to answer, email them to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.